this morning. Before we get started, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, help us this morning as we look at your text that you will open our eyes to see. Help us to not miss the major points of the text. And at the same time, Lord, I pray you help us to see the things that are there that ought to be identified. And Lord, most of all, I pray that your spirit will work in our, our lives and in our spirits. And bear witness to the truth and cause us to be drawn close to you. Repent if necessary, and in all cases to worship. So glorify yourself. In your name I pray. Amen. This morning we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. It is the beginning of the next story. It's not the complete story, but it is the beginning of the next story. And the next story is made famous because of Stephen, of course. And Stephen shows up in our text this morning, but he just shows up. And the reason why I'm breaking verses 1 through 7 out from the rest of the text is because I think there's some important things to gather from this text that we don't oftentimes see. Um, and so it's, I want to slow down so that we can see this because typically when we look at this text, Acts, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, we think of what? Any idea? The deacons. It's, a, it's a, a text discussing deacons. And, and it, it, as a matter of fact, to be a little more specific, it's a text dealing with how to choose deacons or the process of dealing with choosing deacons. Certainly this is the first time that deacons shows up in the scriptures. But I would argue this text is a whole lot more important than that. As a matter of fact, I think the whole deacon discussion is quite secondary in the text. Um, and by the way, the word deacon, anybody know what the word means? Deacon. Servant. servant. It means servant. It shows up actually in the New Testament 63 times. Only a couple times does it refer to an office called, that we call deacons. The office of a deacon. Most times it's referencing either being a servant or it's referencing servanthood. So it's presented in a variety of ways, but most of the variety is not upon a position. The vast, vast weight of the scriptures is quite to the contrary. It is for everyone, and the call in the scriptures throughout the New Testament is to serve one another. And most importantly, to serve God, to serve Christ. Absolutely. But it is not described predominantly as, in fact, I would argue, by the way, it is not described anywhere in the scriptures as a position of authority, which is very intriguing. It's never in the scriptures put in the position of authority. It's always in the position of serving. You see it start to show up here in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. But there, again, I think that although the text certainly, I would argue, teaches the process here by default, by description, not prescription, but by description. Um, there's, again, some other things that I think are much more important in the big flow of the, of the, uh, the book that we call the book of Acts than, than just the issue of the deacons. Certainly we have, again, in verses 1 through 7, um, verses, especially verses 3 uh, through 6, a, a, a brief description of the process as well as a description of qualifications. It's a brief description, but it is a description of qualifications. It's expanded elsewhere by Paul, but uh, we will see that as it comes about, we'll talk about it. But again, I think that there is something much more significant and important going on in the text. And I think we, over history, we've been blinded by the more important thing in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, because of the emphasis and the description that is given here of deacons. Let's read the text, and then we'll see it. Verse 1, starting. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenistics arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of wisdom of the wisdom, I'm sorry, of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And when they had said, and what they had said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the spirit, and Philip, 
and Prochorus and Nick, I'm not sure how you pronounce this, uh, Nicanor or Nisanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And they set forth, I'm sorry, and they set before the apostles and they prayed, or these they set forth uh, before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And there's our text this morning. Before we get into what I think is the important part, the most important part, it's all important, the most important part with regard to this text, let's just camp on the deacons and the, and the uh, there's a couple different categories of people. We have deacons that are being described, correct? We have the um, disciples and we have the apostles that are being described here. I want to identify all three groups. You'll notice in verse 1, it says, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, disciple no longer here in the text is referring to the 12 disciples. Does that make sense? A disciple is a learner, a follower. Does that make sense? A learner and a follower of Christ. Okay? That's what a disciple is at this point. The t idea of the 12 has ceased to be what we uh, understand now as disciples. In the Gospels, those were the disciples because, frankly, they were the only learners and followers, right? That was it. But now there's a boatload. We've seen 5,000, 3,000, many more being added daily, correct? Those would be, for the most part, disciples. They've been saved They've been redeemed. They have the Spirit. They have the Spirit with power. They're fellowshipping together. They're ministering the Word of God to each other and to the lost. They are caring for one another. They're faithfully following through, at this point, generally speaking, Acts 2, 42-47, that description in Acts 2, 42-47. That's what you see. These are disciples. There are exceptions. There are wolves in the midst, aren't there? And the two wolves we know about so far are who? Ananias and Sapphira, the two wolves, uh, we could say a wolf and a wolf-s. How's that? Two wolves in the midst. Now those wolves have been removed, right? And the result is great fear fell on everybody. We saw in chapter 5. And people who were wolves are saying, I don't think I want to be involved for the most part. However, you know this, and this is interesting. After Ananias and Sapphira died, chapter 5 tells us all of a sudden all these people who really want the perks but don't want don't want the benefits are saying, I don't want to be involved. Not the people who are already involved. It's people who before may have been interested, but when this happens, they're finally realizing there's a cost. However, we're going to discover there are, not all the people are disciples, because we know not all those residual, right? There's problems we're going to see in a minute. But disciples, generally speaking here, are the, the, the people who have responded to the call of Christ. They are followers. They are... They are learners. Saints. Uh, say saints, right? Yeah, they're saints. Absolutely. And it shows up again in verse 7. You see in verse 7, the word of God continued to increase and the number of what? The disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. So it's continuing, correct? You see that? And not only, by the way, there's another group of people, fourth group of people, very interesting. You see it in verse 7, don't you? There's a fourth group. Who is it? The priests. Jewish priests who are absolutely committed to Judaism, what's happening? What does it say? And a great many of the priests, not a couple, not a sprinkling of them, a great many of the priests are also becoming obedient to the faith, which means they are being redeemed. They're believers. They've repented and they've turned from sin to Christ. And in the case of the priests, they're turning, especially, they're turning not just from sin, but they're turning from their dependence upon the law, the law to the fulfiller of the law. Correct? It's a beautiful, amazing statement, just as an aside in verse 7, isn't it? Doing I mean, they know too. what's that? They're giving up their job and everything. They're they giving know. everything up. Everything. They're turning back on everything for Christ. And it's interesting, it's placed here in here just as an aside, isn't it? Almost like, well, of course they would, right? If the Spirit's at work, of course they would. It's a stunning uh, aside, 
and an important value to see. So disciples are now people who are followers of Jesus. They are saved people. You also have a group within the, the saved people, verse 2, who are in this text called what? The twelve, right? The twelve. You see verse 2. And the twelve summon the full number of the disciples and said, and it goes on and talks about it. Now, who is, who is the twelve? The eleven plus one, right? Yeah, the eleven plus one. That used to be called disciples, but now they're called apostles. But what is their function here? If we if we fold the rest of the New Testament into the text, what's their function? To make disciples. Leadership, or more specifically, they're functioning elders. as elders. Elders or pastors. They're ministering the word of God. That's what we see here, right? So you have these apostles who are functioning in the church in Jerusalem as elders. Crucially see that. It's in light of that, by the way, that we get our first introduction of the role of the leaders or elders of the church. Here in the text, was, what do they say? And verse 2 again, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said what? It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God. What? For what purpose? To serve tables. And that's why they, sing, they, they, they say, let's find seven people and set them up to do these duties, which are later, they, they are understood as what? Servants. Servants or deacons. Absolutely. So now we have the third group of people that show up, deacons. And what we find out with the deacons here in the text, so we have the first initial description of elders here in this text, don't we? And the primary task of elders is what? in this text to preach the word right now if there's 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 an assumption behind behind that right if they're going if their primary text is to preach the word minister the word that means behind that would be another primary requirement to be what study to study the word right what were you gonna say Jim not to what knowledge of the word to study the word so obviously, elsewhere in the scripture, it talks about that as another primary task of uh, an elder is to study and minister the word. The third category that's put out in the scriptures later is, anybody know? Pray. Those are the three tasks, primary tasks of an elder. I say it because, can I just say this real quickly? You talk to most pastors and you ask them, what's your tasks? What's your, what's, your, what's your responsibilities? And you know what? That doesn't show up. Or if it shows up, it shows up in a list along with many, many other things that are put in there equally. But in the scriptures, there's only three. That's it. Three tasks. Study, preach, and minister the scriptures. Three tasks. Isn't, I mean, but leadership... Because you have ruling elders in some Presbyterian churches that are not preaching elders. Yes. Leadership also is Well, leadership is, is not really described in the scriptures as a requirement per se. It is, it is described, I mean, it's shown in, in the function, no question. But when it comes to prescription, prescription is three. Now, one thing I would add to that, though, at the same time, it's a good point. Uh, Tom, when you said, but like, for example, they have non-teaching elders in, in the Presbyterian Church, for example. Um, my, my argument would be that if you're not, you, your primary task is not minister of the word, then you don't, you're not an elder. So it, it, in, it, let's, say, let's, say, let's say, for example, for, for discussion, we'd be real informal today. Let's say for sake of discussion that we were a Presbyterian Church, just to work off your idea, Tom. And I would be, therefore, the, let's, let's, let's work through it. And, and Tom and, and, and Charles are Tom's uh, executive elder. How's that? Executive elder. And Charles is, um, what? Vice executive oh. <laughs> elder. <laughs> that works. It works. I'm the, I'm the teaching elder, which means I do what? I teach. Every official meeting I'm teaching, blah, 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 right? Your primary tasks must still be to what? Teach. If you're not teaching, you're not an elder. 
your, your task. And, and so as, 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 a, as if we were a Presbyterian church, which we're not, if we were a Presbyterian church, our responsibility in a leadership team would be to do what? To make sure that you are fulfilling your call as an elder. Preach, teach, pray, and study. That's their tasks. All those other things, they may or may not come into play, but that must come into play. And I think we make a mistake when we start, when we start having elders that aren't having that as a primary role. And I think in a lot of churches, as you bring it up, Tom, I think there's a lot of churches that have all these pastors or elders that teaching is not even on their, on their job description. And that's not being an elder. It just isn't. I'm not saying it's always the case, but I find oftentimes it is. Certainly there are, that doesn't mean that there, are, there may not be other responsibilities. Obviously there, there, there may very well be other responsibilities, but these are, the, these are the biblical responsibilities. And the reason why I want to distinguish between them, I want to get off the elders because that's not our point here. The, re, the reason why I want, to, I, I want to distinguish between the biblically mandated responsibilities and the other things is because you know what happens in real life? There's always conflict between responsibilities, isn't there? If you have a job, you know it, right? Don't you? Matt, you probably have at least 10 responsibilities at work, don't you? Probably 20. Maybe even 30, right? Yeah. There was a conflict? Like every day? But you have certain things that are absolutely essential. And so other things, they may not get handled, right? Or if they get handled, they may be pushed back, way back. Right? Because these must not. See, the problem is, too often in the church, what happens with too many people is other things get elevated. Even with a teaching or, or preaching elder, the, 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 some people call it the senior elder or pastor, too many other things get elevated to equal, and next thing you know, what starts hurting? What starts getting damaged? What? The teaching and ministry, right? And the praying. And the... Study. That's what starts getting hurt because they're doing other things. Too often that is the case, but the, the idea that, that I would argue is that the biblically mandated, both by example and prescription in the scriptures, must always be maintained. Always. That must never be sacrificed. Enough about the elders there. I just wanted to point that out to you. You'll notice with regard to, to the, what we call deacons from the Greek word diakonos, sorry Jim. Uh, <laughs> but you'll notice in verse three, the uh, elders, the apostles, the 12, say therefore, since it's not right that we should give up preaching the word, and there you see the priority, right? Don't you see it there? It's very clear. It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables, Therefore, brothers, speaking to who? The disciples, the people of the church, the redeemed ones. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint this duty. You'll notice first a couple things there in verse 3. And I'm going to move through this quickly because there's a bigger thing I want to get to. The twelve... The apostles, the elders, say to the church, assign to the church what task? Selecting. To select them, right? You see that, it's pretty straightforward. Pick out seven men. You'll notice also, what gender should they be? Men. men. Important you see that as well. And he says, of what? Good reputation, good reputation or good repute. They should be of good, they should, in other words, their lifestyle should be examined, right? They're not just warm bodies that are willing, correct? Their lifestyle should be examined. They should have a characteristic of good reputation. Does that make sense? He goes on and says they need to be full of the Spirit. That is, the Spirit is evidently at work in their lives. It is clear that the Spirit is at work. Now, we don't have time to get into right now because I want to talk about something else. I'd love to at a different time about what that means. But I think in context 
of chapter uh, of the book of Acts, I think we've already seen there's some evidence of the Spirit, right? Two through through five make it pretty clear what it looks like if someone's full of Spirit, doesn't it? We can leave it at that and just run through the last number of messages and you can kind of see it. So it says, full of the Spirit, number one. And number two, full of wisdom. wisdom. And please understand what the, what the apostles, what the elders mean by that statement, full of wisdom. What that means is a deacon should be full of a certain type of wisdom. And please don't miss, I've met a lot of people who we would classify as wise, but they are wise in the wisdom of this world. Surely, the, the twelve can't be talking about that. Can we buy that? Can we agree to that? It doesn't say it here, but I think we can, we can comfortably agree that he's not saying, listen, you know, if... Um, Dr. Phil is a member of your church. That's an obvious one, right? He should be a deacon, shouldn't he? He's full of wisdom, right? No. No. What wisdom is he talking about? The wisdom of the scriptures. This guy who is an elder, or I'm sorry, is a deacon, should be someone who firstly is full of the Spirit, evidentially, and secondly, full of wisdom of the Scriptures. That, does that make sense? You tracking me so far? It's, it's a powerful statement of a qualification that is being thrown out by the Twelve to the church. This is what you look for. Now, there are other descriptions later on of what to look for that are added to it, but at this point, this is it. And these two are not taken away later on. They're added to. Very important that we see that. And then lastly, in verse 3, you'll notice whom we will appoint to this duty. Who appoints them? The twelve do, correct? The elders. They, are, they actually do the anointing. Which, by the way, is intriguing. The process is pretty intriguing because that's not how it's done today. And I think it's appropriate that we observe that and see that that is what's taking place here. Who we will appoint to this duty. Verse 4, he goes on, but we will devote ourselves. And here he introduces that part we talked about before, the prayer and the ministry of the word for the, for the elders. But we will devote ourselves to what? Prayer and to the ministry of the word. And notice the word. I want you to see it. The word that, that, that drives this whole statement in verse 4 is what? What? No, not in verse 4. Devote. Devote. What, is, what does King James say? What is, how does King James read verse 4? Good. So, so give ourselves completely to. Great, great. Actually, I really like that. That's a great understanding of, of the word devote. We, who? The elders, the twelve, are going to give ourselves completely to what? Prayer and the ministry of the word. Correct? That's where we're going to live. That's the point of the elders in the text. It's an important statement which I'm not going to uh, uh, expand on anymore because we've already talked about it. You see verse 5, what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen and lists all the other people off. By the way, real quickly in verse 5, it says, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, that and the Holy Spirit. And then he just throws out the names of all the rest of them. It doesn't mean the rest of them weren't. He identifies Stephen primarily. Why do you think? Because he's about to tell more about him. Because he's about ready to tell a whole lot more about Stephen. And so he singles Stephen out and expands the statement about Stephen to set up what's about to come. Make sense? So he does this quite often in the book of Acts. Makes a brief intro and then expands. Nothing is said about the other six. Just about Stephen later on. But here it is. About seven. Uh, about the seven, I'm sorry. And then we come to verse seven. Oh, in verse six... Uh, these they sent before the apostles. The apostles obviously agreed to the seven. 
correct? And they prayed and laid their hands on them. Which, by the way, in obviously agreeing to that, the idea, the evidence is they obviously agreed, implies what? That they knew them on one hand, good. They also saw it, good, on one hand, but what else? On the opposite side, the negative side would be what? No, the idea is that, that it's come, they've come to them for, to appoint them, right? The, the, the church chose them, the elders are going to appoint them, which implies that if they didn't see being filled with the Spirit and filled with wisdom, that the, that the 12, the elders, had the right and responsibility to what? Reject that person. Now, all seven are accepted. But they, they have the right to reject it. Now, in this case, all seven are accepted. Otherwise, the appointment's meaningless. Everybody understand that? So, just to show the process. So they, they set the, before the apostles. These they set before the apostles. Verse 6, they prayed and laid their hands on them. And uh, then, then, obviously, from there, they're sent out to do their work, which we're going to talk about in just a second. Verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase. What that means is not that, wow, it's all, now it's 64 books. It was only 63 before. That's not what it means. When it says the word of God increased, it's talking about in people's lives, in people's hearts, in people's minds, their wisdom of the Word was increasing. There was a, a dramatic increase of the Word of God in people's lives. And the Word of God continued to increase in numbers, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the, to the faith. So there we have it. That's the, that's the introduction to the disciples and the term disciples. It's the introduction to the twelve as a new term that will later be called apostles. And, and, and its introduction to them at this point in time is functioning as elders. Later on, they will not be elders, but they are now. Although they're always considered an elder, but, but they're, for the most part, at least the apostles we follow in the scriptures eventually end up doing a lot of traveling, so to speak. Does that make sense? And so they, they for example, with Paul, who also becomes an apostle, he sends Titus to do what? To find elders in every city. Every city, what city? The cities he went to and planted churches and set up the elders in every city because he can't be an elder in these cities he's not ministering in. Make sense? And so elders are set up. In any case, um, and then we're also introduced to the deacons, of course. We're introduced to the priests in verse 7. That brings us all the way back to the beginning of the chapter again. The thing that I want to really zero in on today for the next 15 minutes. We're probably going to end a little early today. Is that okay with everybody? No. Okay, then we're going to keep going. <laughs> Verse 1. I would argue is probably one of the most intriguing verses in the, in the chapter until we get into all the conflict later on. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews, or Hellenistics, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So what do we have in the church now? In chapter 6, verse 1. We've got a conflict, right? Now you've heard me talk about this briefly before, but we're going to expand on it a lot more this morning. So please don't turn, tune me out because I'm going to say some things I've never said before to you. Um, so here's what we have, and if I have, I don't think I have, but if I have, it's good repetition, aids, and learning. We have two different groups of people that we have not mentioned yet, right? We have the, what is the first group? The Hellenists. What does the King James call them? In verse 1. Grecians. Grecians. That doesn't mean they use Grecian formula or anything like that. Just clarification for us old guys, right, Jim? <laughs> That's only two of us, I think, but that's... Oh, Kent. <laughs> Grecians or Hellenists, I'll explain it in a second. And the second group is what? Hebrews. The Hebrews. What, what the conflict is, is involving are Hellenistic Jews or Grecian Jews and Hebrew Jews. The implication of the text is that these Hellenistic Jews... And, or the Grecian Jews and the Hebrew, the Hebrew Jews, to use the term, are both part of what could be classified in verse 1 
the disciples. Does that make sense? And this, by the way, what we're talking about now is going to come into play all the way through the rest of chapter uh, 6 and into chapter 7. The Grecian Jews or Hellenistic Jews are most likely, at least for the most part, it may not be completely this, but for the most part, they're Jews. Not proselyte Jews, they're real Jews. Oh, there's probably some proselyte Jews in the midst. But what they are is they're Jews, whether proselyte Gentiles, who used to be Gentiles and now are, are Jewish, and therefore identifying as Jews, kind of like Rahab in the Old Testament. She became a Jew, she was a proselyte, but she was really a Canaanite. There may have been some of those, but for the most part, they're probably Jews, natural Jews, who have as their language primarily, what do you think? Greek is their primary language. They don't know Hebrew very well. They're identified with this foreign language primarily. They may very well have been business, you know, lower business people, like real low, but most likely not. The Hebrew Jews were people who were absolutely local and they were absolutely Hebrew speakers. They were like pure. Does that make sense? They were pure. Can you sense the conflict? What's that? Yeah. Jim, great way to put it. They take care of their own. The conflict is the age-old conflict, isn't it? What's the age-old conflict? You're different from me. And because you're different from me, I what? I look down on you, right? And I don't treat you as well. That makes sense so far? It's an age-old conflict, isn't it? I'm sorry? They didn't treat it all like, like a fellow believer, right? That's the point. There's a conflict. And you see it here now in, those, in these days when disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the, Hellenistic, by the Hellenists uh, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now let me just say in verse 1, if we really camp on verse 1, we should at some level be really shocked. Because the church, up chapter 2 through 4, seems to be doing really well, doesn't it? Doesn't it? I mean, it's not that there wasn't sin in the midst. There were, but there's repentance going on, right? And we know, even though the scriptures don't really talk about that, although they are confessing sins one to another. So, but yeah, of course there's sin, but they're repenting, they're one, they're united, they're one in faith and soul. That's, that's what the text said, didn't it? Chapter 5, we had a conflict with how many people? Two. Two. So for the most part, the church still seems unified, right? But there's a conflict. Two are, 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 are marching to a different drumbeat, correct? And they die for it. Now we have another problem. And it's shortly after the chapter 5 scenario. Because in the context, it seems to flow. It's the same days, right? In these days... When the disciples were increasing in number in these days. And by, by the way, can I just stop for a second? That opening statement, I'm going to back up for one second. That opening statement, in these days, is an interesting statement as well, isn't it? And here's what I want to say about that. And then I'm going to get off of it. He says, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, right? When disciples were increasing in number, that number that he's referring to would you describe as a dramatic number or a normal number? That's kind of dramatic, isn't it? Right? That's dramatic. If I could just say this, the implication of the text is that that's not normal. That's not normal. This is a when these days were going on. Even in the storyline of the scriptures, that's not normal, is it? Even when you start getting into, into the epistles, that's not happening, is it? What's happening normally in the epistles is what? People being added by thousands or persecution? Persecution, right? And then later in, in the epistles, what do you start finding? People being added by thousands or people being subtracted by thousands? 
Subtracted by thousands. Read 2 Timothy chapter 4. It's pretty evident. So subtraction, as, as the New Testament begins to close out, is becoming more and more dramatic. It's important to see. Now, what did, John, what did Jesus say in John chapter 10? All the, or 15, whatever it was. All the Father gives me, I lose none. And the implication is, number one, he's giving. Number two, none are lost. Correct? Yes. Not all those who say, Lord, Lord. Absolutely. That's what we're finding here. It is very, it, up to now, five and now six. Now in these days, when the, I say it to say, say this real quick on that opening stage. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. You know what that, that tells me, that encouraged me with, by the way? Don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. If people aren't being added, then you, then you, you don't see them added. That shouldn't discourage you. Because what do we just say? All that the Father gives me, I what? I lose none. Implication, he, he gets them all. Right? Shouldn't discourage us. If, if thousands aren't being added today, that shouldn't be discouraging. The thing that should discourage us, that should discourage us is if we're not, what? Persevering and not proclaiming, right? In the midst of the persevering. Correct? That should discourage us, right? Because that's a call of repentance. But the, the results belong to who? Belongs to the Lord. I'm confident that all the Father gives him, he loses none. So when he calls, they come. <laughs> so don't be discouraged if you don't see both the people added. We should be discouraged if we are not proclaiming, if we're not being lights in the midst of darkness, because that's the call of spirit-filled people, right? Acts 2 through 4, for example. And in 5 and 6 here, too. But not the results. That should never discourage us. But in the midst of this, verse 1, as the disciples are, or what, when the disciples were increasing in numbers, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. Just stop there for a second. What did we see before? They were of one mind and soul. Right? They are one mind and soul. It's an amazing picture of thousands of people. Of one mind and soul. It's a supernatural thing, isn't it? It's got to be a supernatural thing. But now suddenly in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, there's a complaint that arises between two groups of people, two factions, which is stunning when you start to think about Romans. There is now more, no any more what? Jew or, Gentile. Jew or Gentile, but all are one in Christ. Interesting, huh? And here we've got the Hellenists and the Hebrews, and there's a conflict. A complaint. A gripe. And I love the point, that, that or the word that is chosen, at least in the ESV, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. It arose. Do you get the sense that, that this is not like one person came to the, disciple, to the, to the 12 and said, um, there's a little problem. Do you get the sense that that's not the case? You have to because it's plural. Hellenists, plural. Against the Hebrews, plural. The Hellenists, plural, are what? Complaining. Complaining. And the idea of a rose, is, you can correct me if you want to, but I, I really think that the, the point of it is that it's, it's like arising. It's becoming evidence, becoming loud. It's becoming outspoken. It's beginning to be trumpeted. There, the conflict is obvious to anybody in the church. Yes? Murmurings. There you go. Perfect. It's murmurings going on. Gripings. Their, their feet, they're festering on it. That's the point. It's festering. It's a, it's a wound that is festering. It's infected. It's spreading. 
It's causing a problem in this early, young, infant church. It's bad. It's a church that at this point in time was one heart, one soul. And suddenly, murmuring, complaining. Now, why do I center on this? Because it is interesting, up to this point in time, there seems to be a whole lot of fellowship, prayer, study together, ministry to one another, caring for one another. People are selling things and giving to one another. And giving to the church to, to distribute. Um, and on and on and on. But, but, but it, interestingly enough, and this is going to come into play in just a second, in chapter 2 it says they're also doing what? They're sharing with each other. Nobody is considering anything their own. They're sharing with each other, right? Didn't we see that? We saw it in 4 as well, in 5. But now, suddenly, no more one heart, one soul. Now it's my group against your group. And it starts to spread. A major problem. Could I just submit to you, just, just by introduction to the rest all the way through chapter 7, when, when, when Stephen finally gets killed, this whole thing, I would argue, is based upon what happens here in 1 through 7. You'll see as we work our way through how, how that all connects. But there is definitely no disconnect from this, in my, my view of it. There's a conflict in the church. The elders are like, it's not ours to deal with. We need to find some people that are full of the spirit and full of wisdom to deal with this. But it's serious. And then it goes on in chapter 6, verse 1. A, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, and now we find out what the complaint is about. Because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. We don't know much else beside that. Seemingly, whether the, whether the gripe is, is legitimate or not, we don't know. It's not established whether it's, whether it's legitimate, is it? Right. It's just the complaint is described. It may or may not be legitimate. But the, and we don't even know the specifics. This idea that's presented in the text, quite as an aside, is they're griping, they're complaining, they're murmuring, they're festering over this fact that, they're, that their widows are being neglected for the Hebrew widows. That's the implication, correct? Now, again, it may be legitimate, it may not be. And even what that looks like, it could very well be, like most people think, it could very well be that the, that the Hebrew widows are being served first, which is what most people think. And then after they're served, then, then the, then the um, Hellenist widows are getting served second. You could add to that, it could very well be that what's happening is that the best of the, of the supply is going to the Hebrew widows, and then the, the Hellenistic widows are just getting the leftovers. It could actually be, hold on one second, it could actually be that the Hebrew widows are getting food, and the, the Hellenist widows get nothing, right? Could be, yes. Um, so am I, am I understanding correctly that it's the church that is helping the needy and not the Excellent. Both those are excellent. Way to think. I like it. Th that, that's exactly, if I may just say on your part, Stephanie, that's exactly where we see the deacons going. Stephen, as an example. We'll see that next week and the week after, okay? To, to just prime the pump for next week. It's interesting that the description goes on with Stephen ministering the word primarily, right? He's trying to straighten out things, but the implication in the text as it goes on is he's ministering by what? Not primarily waiting on tables, although they probably did, but it's something much more significant than that. Yeah. So hold that thought till next week if you could, Stephanie. And we'll get your, your thought this morning. We'll get that one this morning, but Stephanie's is next week. All right. Whew. This is exciting stuff. Good. So in verse 1, this, this complaint arises, murmuring arises, 
So something is happening with regard to the daily distribution, which implies something, by the way, the distribution is daily. But something's not going right. The elders maybe didn't recognize it, most likely didn't recognize it because they're not involved. But as the case may be, somehow or other, the Hellenists are feeling like that their widows are being shortchanged, whether it is just the leftovers or, the, or no help at all. Make sense? It's interesting. This comes into what you're talking about. The people are, some people are selling their property, right? We saw that first in Acts chapter 2. We saw it again in Acts chapter 4 and 5. Correct? They're selling their property and giving the proceeds to the pastors, the elders, the 12, so that that could be distri distributed to those in need. Right? Widows? Makes sense. They'd be in need, doesn't it? Especially in that day. Especially, by the way, in that day. They'd be in need. I get that. And the church is trying to distribute as the need is. The, whether legitimate or not, the, Hel the Hellenists observe, realize that the Hellenist widows are not being taken care of fairly. Correct? Fairly. And they murmur which is wrong in itself, right? Clearly a sinful thing. It eventually gets up to the elders, and the elders make their determination. But the point I'm trying to make is what, what you're hitting on over here. And that is, if the Hellenists, who are believers supposedly, right? They're disciples. They're identified as disciples. If they see someone or a group of someones that they think aren't being treated very well, what should have happened in, in Acts? If we think about Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. They should have stepped up and did something about it. They should have stepped in and sacrificially cared for them, shouldn't they have? They should have stepped up and cared for them. They should have said, huh, you know what? If I may be blunt, I need to eat this lunch. If it was worst case scenario, right? I, I, I can miss a meal. I'm going to give it to a widow. I'm going to invite a widow over to my house and care for them. <coughs> That would make sense according to the context that we come from, wouldn't it? It flows, that's where it should be. My goodness, that doesn't mean they don't go and talk to the elder and say, hey, I think the elders say, can we work on this somehow? Can you give us direction, right? And then the elders can speak spiritually into it, and you may still have deacons, but they'd be, they'd, they'd be responding how? In the description I just described that you were hitting on, they'd be, they'd be, they'd be functioning how? In sin or in holiness? They'd be functioning whole in a holy way, wouldn't they? A loving way, a caring way, a sacrificial way. They would be doing what? They would be like, wow, I got a widow here. You're going to play a widow. I got a widow here that's not being treated right. I'm not saying that it's, that it's purposeful. It Maybe it may not be, but she's hungry, and that's what's important, right? That's what's important. She's a, she's a, a sister in Christ. She, she, needs, she needs food, doesn't she? So, hey, here, you can have my lunch. Or I brought extra, so you can have some. Or come over to my house and, and, and have dinner with us. Would that not make sense? Biblically, would that not make sense? Would that be not being full of the Holy Spirit? Wouldn't it? It would make complete sense, wouldn't it? If we're full of the Holy Spirit. However, if I'm not full of the Holy Spirit, then what is it going to look like? Can you believe the widows aren't being taken care of? Can you? I mean, it's out of control. And then Charles goes over with me and Ken says, Charles over here with Ken and I and say, can you believe this? They're taking care of their widows. They're taking care of theirs, not ours. Can you believe this? 
And Tom, hey, what do you think? Yeah, rawr. Tom, and Tom says something silly and funny and rhymes and something else, but he agrees. <laughs> I had to throw that in, Tom. And, 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 and so what do we do? We say, hey, Tom, you're the most eloquent, so why don't you go complain with that? Come on. You'll be our spokesperson. Go complain to the elders about it. Why don't you go speak? <laughs> and, and this table back over here, they're the Hebrew people, and they're like, oh, what do you mean? Let's pretend for a second that it's legit. That, 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 that they're not being taken care of. But they're back here saying, what do you mean? We're taking care of it. I mean, do you feel the conflict? Does that sound like it ever happens? Now, I know... I know it, what you said, Ken, it happens all the time, but let's make it a little more narrow. That would never happen in the church, would it? No. Only outside the church. That would never happen in the church, right? Right? You're going to say something, Jim. happens in the church, right? Could I just throw something out to you real quick? You know, you know what's going on in verse 1? It's people who aren't full of the Holy Spirit. Right? People who aren't full of the Spirit. They're, 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 they're full of something else. You know they're full of? My stuff. Do you hear it? This is mine. Whether it's my food, these are my widows, right? They're no longer identifying one in Christ, correct? I mean, it's multifaceted sin going on here, isn't it? It's grotesque, multifaceted sin that's, that's, that's causing the infection. Why? Well, it's, it's really interesting. On one level, you could say that, that all this giving into the church, people's sinful hearts got really corrupted really quickly. Didn't it? All this money's coming into the church first got corrupted with Ananias and Sapphira last chapter, didn't it? We can, get, we can get attention by doing this. But in this chapter, what's happened is the sinful sinfulness of it starts rearing its ugly head in I no longer have to participate. I no longer have to take personal responsibility in ministry. I no longer have to minister. Isn't that what's happening here? I no longer, even if the, even if the problem is legitimate. Could I just submit something to you? I know it's going to come as a complete shock to you. Life's not fair. We know that in the world, right? But can I just submit something else to you? Life's not fair in the church either. We keep running with the idea that life should be fair. No, life should be about glorifying Christ. In the midst of all the unfairness. Magnifying Jesus and his amazing love and mercy and grace towards us. In the midst of the unfairness, correct? Have you ever been mistreated in church or by someone in church? I bet a lot of you have. I have. In fact, I've probably done it to some of you. We're sinful, finite people, aren't we? We fail people, don't we? We fail one another, don't we? We mistreat one another, whether purposefully or accidentally, don't we? Yes. Right? We drop the ball, don't we? Yeah. We do. You know what that is? You, you know what, what that actually is for? Is God sovereign, by the way? 
Is God sovereign over the events of our lives? Yes. So when that, that, that unfairness, that mistreatment comes into our lives, it, you know what it should do? It should cause us by the Spirit moving within us to ask ourselves a really important question. You know what the question is? Why me? Why is it happening to me? Why is this happening to me now? Recognizing maybe it's unfair. Maybe I'm being mistreated. Why is it happening to me? And by the way, can I just submit to you when you ask that question, there's only one legitimate answer? What's that? Because God has ordained and opened your eyes to see the unfairness or the mishandling, the, the, the mistreatment, whatever it may be. God has opened your eyes to see it and to experience it. Why? Because that's where God wants you to minister. That's where God wants you to be light in the midst of darkness. That's why. That's why it all happens. Because God's after something, isn't he? Isn't he? Mm -hmm. Is God not after something? What's he after? His glory. His glory. And in his sovereign plan, he brings things like that into our life. Can I ask you a quick question? Was what happened to Daniel fair? Now, I know it was outside the church, but you get the point. Was, was what happened to Daniel fair? No. Was what happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fair? No. And we can go on, can't we? Joseph. Joseph. Was it fair? Paul. Was it fair? Job. All the things that happened to him. Huh? Job. Job. Was it fair? No. Any, you can go anywhere, right? Was it fair? Was it right? Was it... Was it good from human perspectives? The answer is no on all those, right? But was it, was it good? Yes. What did, what did God say? What did, I'm sorry, what did Joseph say to his brothers? You meant these things for, in Genesis chapter 50, you meant these things for evil, but God meant them for good. So was, were all those events good? I just listed a bunch of biblical events. Were they good? Yes, they were for the good. Yes, absolutely. They were so God could be glorified. And by the way, all the ones we just mentioned are pretty horrific things, aren't they? They're pretty horrific. They're not something silly and stupid like, wow, the, 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 the Hellenist widows are, are, are getting the leftovers. <laughs> they only got one bun instead of two. Now, I'm, I'm making light of it, but you get my point. It certainly isn't like being thrown in, 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 uh, in a lion's den, is it? It's not like being thrown in a fiery furnace, is it? It's not like being thrown into a pit and sold to slavery, is it? Is it? No. They're getting all worked up over what? Something that was by God's design to bring glory to himself. Isn't it? And instead of being part of that bringing God's glory, they're doing what? What's the word again? They're doing what? They're murmuring. And they're spreading the infection, just like we just did right here. That's what they're doing. Opportunity to glorify God in the midst of, of, the, of, the, of the problem. And instead, total self-serving. And losing track of, of, the, of the call of Christ in their life. And it happens like this, doesn't it? It happens just like that. Now we're going to find as we work our way through that Stephen steps up to the plate to fulfill the call on his life to do what? To, to wait on tables? No. To do what, Ken? Bring glory to God. To bring glory to God. Absolutely. That's what we're going to see as we go on. There's much more we could say in the text here. We're going to stop here, except to say that you know the, the, the text. You get the sense this text is a little bit more important than just how to choose deacons or the role of what the elders are supposed to do. It's a little bigger, isn't it? See, verse one actually sets up what's going to happen all the way through to the end of chapter seven, and it all starts out over a stupid, insignificant rumbling and griping. The encouraging thing is we're going to see something. 
In spite of all the grumbling and complaining, does God glorify himself? Oh my goodness, does he glorify himself. <laughs> it's stunning how he glorifies himself. The point of the text is, are we filled, are we, are we filled with the spirit, the wisdom? Are we, in this case, a deacon-esque type of person? Are we more like the, the, the group of Hellenists and, and Hebrews? Are, are we just murmuring? Are we spreading infection? Because that's what we're doing, right? We're either spreading infection, in this case, murmuring. We're either spreading infection or we're spreading what? Light, right? We're either spreading infection or we're spread, spreading Christ. Or to put it in a more clear way, we're either spreading darkness or we're spreading light. What were the Hellenists and, and, and the Hebrews doing, these two groups, which didn't concise, it didn't comprise all of the, of the Jews that were in the church. It, it's just two groups. Were they spreading light or darkness? Darkness. Now we're going to find that God is merciful to these two groups. What happened to Ananias and Sapphira? Instant death, right? What happens to these? There's nothing stated. God is long-suffering, isn't he? Amen for that. At the same time, the call of the text is, I would argue, a really strong call to each one of us personally. We could say the call is personally to care for people in need, right? No question. But that's a secondary call, isn't it? It's really a secondary call. It's there. But, you know, the real call is not care for people in need. The real call is to be about the light, isn't it? To be caught up in Jesus. To be full of the Spirit. Why are these two groups not like Stephen? That's the question. Why are they not like Stephen? And the other seven? Why are they not like the twelve? Why are they not like the rest of the disciples that are there scratching their head probably saying, what's going on with this two group of people? Now, I'm speaking between the lines now because we don't know what everybody else is saying. But the idea, they, they're not, the church is not divided like in group A, group B, there's nobody else. But there's a small, two, two small factions that are all jacked up. It's probably, it's, it, I would guess it is, by the way, I didn't say this, but I would guess that the two factions are the Hellenists who have widows, who are related to the widows, and Hebrews who are related to their widows. That's most likely the case. Does that make sense? So it's two small factions, but they're creating an uproar in the church. How quickly something like that comes about. Why weren't the twelve like that? Why weren't the why wasn't Stephen the other six like that? Because they were full of the Spirit. They were enthralled with Jesus. They were full and filling themselves up by the Spirit with wisdom. They were focusing on the truth of the scriptures. They were ministering to others. They were caring for people. They were after the light. So the challenge of the text is for each of us to ask ourselves, who am I, right? The characters in the scriptures are always given to us to ask ourselves, you know, where do I see myself? And most importantly, where do I see myself in light of Christ and the light? Am I after the light? Because all these other if I'm after the light, I'm going to what? Care for a widow that I see in need. If I'm after the light, I'm going to confront sin. I'm going to call people to repentance. I'm going to help them grow and change, right? I'm going to speak truth in their life. If I'm filled with the Spirit, I'm going to, outside this context, I'm going to proclaim into a lost and dying world, aren't I? I mean, that's, that's the text, the, the big text of Acts, isn't it? But these two groups... They're not. At this moment in time, what are they doing? Anything but. So your contrast is between the deacons, these seven and twelve, and the unnamed rest of the church, and these two groups. The larger group of the church, filled with the spirit, wisdom, growing, and in these two groups, 
after all sorts of petty things. Because, and the reason why they're after petty the, the answer is not don't be after petty things. The answer is be after Christ. Seek him while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And this is exactly where Stephen goes that we'll see next week. Okay, Steph? So can I just encourage you with that very thing? Seek him. Seeking him will solve this. This is just the evidence they weren't seeking. Fellowship with him and his word, and these things won't happen. Walk in the light, 1 John 1. As he is in the light, we have what? Fellowship with one another. That's what happens. This is evidence that they weren't walking in the light. Correct? We can go after the evidence is all we want, but the point is not to go after the evidence, but to go after the cause. Be in the light. Fellowship in the light. Enjoy Christ. And it all changes. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, help us. <clears throat> we are easily distracted. And we easily, very quickly, find ourselves taking insignificant things and making them most important. And the whole reason why we do it is because our eyes aren't fixed on you. The reason why we do is because we turn from the fountain of living water, we turn to the cisterns and we start digging holes in the ground that can't hold water. We get so easily caught up in stupid little baubles when you are the pearl of great price. And so, Lord, I pray you will help us. Help us to see you as you are because it's only in your light that the stupid little insignificant things become what they really are. Tools for your glory. So transform our thinking. Change our hearts so that we long for you. In your name I pray. Amen. Let's sing, shall we? Sing